Support for this show comes from SoFi Invest. Alternative investments are now available on SoFi. Unlock the potential to build and protect your wealth with alts including real estate, venture capital, pre-IPO unicorns, and more at SoFi.com WSJ. Active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Alternative funds have unique risks, including the risk of loss, may charge high fees, can be illiquid, and may not be suitable for all investors. Prior to investing in any fund, carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and important information contained in a fund's prospectus. You have to be constantly thinking of new projects that you might do, new revenue streams. Should I get into products? Should I start a podcast? Should I start my own marketing agency? And then, of course, there is the hard work of creating the content. Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast for MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Charles Passy, a reporter at MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. This week, we're doing another book club episode. But before we jump into it, I have a question. Stephanie, if I say Addison Ray, what do you say? I say huge TikTok star. She did those dance videos that went viral, right? Exactly. Okay, so I'm looking at her TikTok right now, and she has almost 89 million followers. And get this, she has almost 6 billion likes. Not only that, she has a YouTube channel. What's up? It's me, Addison Ray. Back with another video. Not in the time that I said it. An Instagram account. That one has almost 40 million followers. Hey, y'all. It's Addison. A podcast and her own cosmetic line. And she's a pop singer and an actress, too. So a lot of times the influencers who maybe are known the most in the public eye might be the small number of influencers who are earning, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars from their brand deals. That's Emily Hund. She has a new book out called The Influencer Industry, The Quest for Authenticity on Social Media. It tracks the rise of social media influencers over the last few decades. The sort of public perception of the influencer industry is oh there's these people creating content you know on instagram and tiktok and whatever and it's silly and they're self-involved but i think it is first of all incredibly important to remember that most recent estimates peg the industry at being worth over 16 billion dollars this is an industry that barely existed just a decade ago and it has just grown astronomically over that time. Huge amounts of money pour into it from brands and marketers and all kinds of organizations who are now looking to leverage the influencers to advance their own messages. Charles, we're going to hear more from Emily Hund in a bit, but I want to share a few data points before we get started. First, a Pew Research Center study conducted in July 2022 it says that 30% of adult social media users say they've purchased something after seeing an influencer or content creator post about it on social media. Wow, that's like three out of 10 people. Yeah, and here's another survey, this one from market researcher Morning Consult from 2019. It shows that more than half of Americans aged 13 to 38 would become a social media influencer if given the opportunity. 
and 86% are willing to post sponsored content for money. You know, it doesn't surprise me because companies are playing along. And I mean, we're talking everybody from major brands to your local restaurant are all tapping into this influencer economy, I've noticed. In today's episode, we're going to hear more from Emily Hund about her new book. We talked to her about how the influencer industry came to be, how it's changed over the years as it's been growing at an exceedingly rapid pace, and where it's heading. There are a few reasons, I think, that influencers have become so financially and culturally powerful. In the book, I go over what I call the perfect storm of events that took place in the first decade of the 21st century. We have technological factors, you know, the advent of software like Blogger that made it easy for people without super technical knowledge to start creating content online. And that really helped push forward the proliferation of blogging. And then we have the creation of social media sites, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. These things just really pushed people online There's also sort of this long history, especially in the United States, of valorizing entrepreneurialism and doing what you love, being passionate about your work, being independent. And so self-branding had been kind of gaining popularity really since the 1980s and throughout the 1990s as people were no longer, you know, spending their careers in one job or one company. It became sort of common advice to brand yourself. Hun says all these factors were sort of brewing in the early 2000s. But when the Great Recession hit in 2008, the influencer industry really began to take off. That really pushed more people than ever online because there were so many underemployed people, unemployed people, especially creative professionals. Uh, This was a time where there was a lot of optimism about these new social platforms. And it seemed like turning to the internet and creating your own content could be, you know, a viable path to sort of regain control of your career, your finances, in a time where it seemed like, you know, everything was sort of falling apart. In researching her book, Hund interviewed 43 professionals working in the influencer industry. That included creators with followings ranging from 2,500 to more than a million. She says pretty much everybody said the same thing. The recession was a turning point for them. It is hard to tell the story of the influencer industry's development without returning to that time period. One example is Chiara Ferragni, known for her popular fashion blog, The Blonde Salad. She was one of the early influencers who had that story of, I think she was in law school, set to be on this more traditional career path, and then started a blog sort of as a creative outlet amidst this global financial crisis. And then the Blonde Salad really exploded into this huge, huge business. And she is one of the people who really grew incredibly quickly and is still today one of the biggest global influencers. Another key marker of the influencer industry, according to Hund, it's highly gendered. 
whether you're talking about influencers themselves or even people working behind the curtain, you know, at brands and marketing firms, it's a lot of women. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. And there have been a number of consequences of that. The influencer industry in its early years, especially, was really positioned in the public eye as being a way to have it all, live your best life, create content about something that you really care about. It was really sort of positioned as this ideal hybrid of a great work-life balance and also, you know, the ability to have control over your professional life. It was sort of like this aspirational career. And I think that that attracted a lot of women who weren't having their needs met in a variety of ways in the structures of more traditional career paths. A lot of influencers that I have interviewed, particularly in the earlier years of this project, like say, you know, mid 2010s, many, many of them shared similar sentiments in that they were perhaps already mothers or they knew that they wanted to have children one day and they felt that pursuing a more traditional career path was not going to work for them and was not going to allow them to both be the kind of parent that they hope to be and have the kind of professional satisfaction and achievement that they knew they were capable of. I think the fact that the industry was really created by women has also had consequences in that this industry that was growing enormously year over year and was completely rewriting the rules of how to get information out there, how to express yourself in the digital age, and how cultural industries work. The influencer industry was having observable impact in these major ways from the beginning, but it was not taken very seriously by the public. And I think that is in part because it was seen as a feminine industry, feminized work. These are just women playing around, posting pictures of themselves. They're materialistic. That just reflected like a total lack of understanding about the work that they were doing. Over just a few decades, the industry grew from a few entrepreneurial-minded bloggers to a big machine, one that was eating into traditional advertising, PR, and media. Hun says four main stakeholders emerged. One, of course, is the influencers themselves. Another stakeholder is the brands who are using influencers as marketing channels. Influencers create sponsored content, or ads. They also use affiliate links where they'll mention a product and link to it. They get a commission when the consumer uses that link to buy it. The third stakeholder is an important middleman, the many marketing agencies that sprung up as the industry grew in size and complexity. I first started noticing them maybe around 2013, 2014 or so. I was trying to track all of the ones that appeared on a spreadsheet, and that quickly became an impossible task because they were just, new ones were popping up like seemingly every week. And that quickly became, you know, a huge driver of this industry. There are businesses that work as 
clearing houses for influencers and brands to sort of hook up with each other in a transactional way. You know, a brand might post, you know, we're looking for influencers to create XYZ type of content on this timeline, here's the pay. And then there are agencies that take more of like a talent management approach who, you know, work really closely with influencers and, you know, sort of help them manage their careers, scout deals, that sort of thing. So that's the influencers, the brands, and the marketing agencies. Finally, we have the social media platforms. In the early days of the influencer industry, the social media companies, they kind of didn't engage with the influencer industry in any kind of formal way. The business of influencing just sort of played out on these various platforms. And then things started to change in the mid to late 2010s when a variety of things happened. We had the FTC start coming out and sending these letters to influencers saying, you know, you're engaged in an advertising relationship and you're not being transparent. Tech giant Facebook is facing scrutiny this week after reports that consulting firm Cambridge Analytica... On up to 87 million people may have been improperly shared with Cambridge Analytica. Tonight, Mark Zuckerberg once again facing skeptical lawmakers. Your data included in the data sold to the malicious third parties. Has this story made us all rethink the way we use information that we share online? Dr. Libby. We also have scandals like Cambridge Analytica obviously really opened the gates to the public being a little bit more aware of the many machinations that go on behind the scenes, the actual businesses that run these platforms that we use every day. And also just influencers continue to sort of rise in their cultural cachet and, and get more and more just attention. And so all of these things kind of caused the social media companies themselves to say, we need to start getting involved here. <laughs> Hun says today, the influencers are an invaluable asset to the platforms. So as the influencer industry has grown so large, and there are so, so many people working as influencers or people, users of these platforms who just aspire to be influencers, an incredible amount of content is created and that is what is driving users to these platforms. When you get open up Instagram these days, you are basically opening it up to a barrage of ads. You're not seeing as much of your friends' content. Your friends may not even really be posting as much as they did five or 10 years ago. Influencers and their sponsored content are really taking over these platforms. And so that is driving the success of most of these platforms now. Coming up, what's it like working as an influencer? That's after the break. I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. 
Welcome back to The Best New Ideas in Money. Before the break, we heard from author Emily Hund, who has a new book out called The Influencer Industry. She explained how a new class of influencers grew out of the economic turmoil of the Great Recession, as well as the massive technological changes at the time. And as we mentioned, she interviewed many influencers for her book, so we thought it made sense to ask her, what's it like working as an influencer? I think every influencer, their days look different, but I think some constants are a sort of sense of uncertainty about the future. Even if they are really well established and have been for years, there is a very real threat, really, that their main platform, whether it's Instagram or TikTok or what have you, might change their terms of service tomorrow might change their algorithm tomorrow and everything could be lost. You have to be constantly thinking of new projects that you might do, new revenue streams. Should I get into products? Should I start a podcast? Should I start my own marketing agency? And then of course there is the hard work of creating the content, whether it is their sponsored content that they are on the hook for, or their own organic content that they need to post just to keep themselves visible on the platforms. While there are successful influencers who are able to make a lot of money from their work, Hun says those people are few and far between. So there is a whole sort of working class of influencers, if you will, who are maybe surviving, but not thriving, (laughs) let's put it that way, from, from their work. And then, you know, there are people who are doing a little bit better than others in that big band. And then at the bottom is this even larger amount of people who are earning little to nothing from their efforts, but are hoping for some sort of future payout. Hunt says a crucial thing to understand about the influencer industry is that influencers have one key commodity, their authenticity. So this is where the central theme or argument of my book comes through, which is I'm putting forward this idea of the industrial construction of authenticity. What I mean by that is that authenticity has always been a really powerful way that people were able to sort of establish themselves as credible, their messages as believable and persuasive. It's been something that the advertising industry, you know, basically since its inception 100, 150 years ago has really tried to leverage this idea that our our products are real or this spokesperson is a real person who uses our product or that sort of thing. Now, authenticity as a concept has also always been sort of a social construction. It's sort of agreed upon by the people involved, whether it's just within your family, what You know, what kind of people does your family think are like really real and authentic and being true to yourselves or your culture, your religion, your country, the school you go to, you know? And what I have gathered from my research on the influencer industries is that in this context, on social media, in this sort of industrialized commercial environment, authenticity has become constructed by the parties who are invested 
in its success. As the industry grew, the concept of authenticity kind of got detached from like people's actual experiences. And it became more about how can I present myself as authentic in a way that makes sense to brands so that I can get deals and in a way that makes sense to followers. And so people had to begin sort of constructing their authenticity in this, in this sort of industrial commercial environment. Now, what complicates all of this further is that influencers are increasingly not just affecting our choice of wall paint brands or skin products, they're influencing our opinions too. Anyone else can use those same sort of industrial tools for communicating a particular form of authenticity to share information that isn't so good for society, that can be actively harmful. And so that really puts the onus on users and followers then to have to try to see through this industrial construction of authenticity and then figure out who is actually being genuine and, you know, telling the truth. Hun says as the influencer industry has grown, all kinds of groups working towards political or ideological ends have started reaching out to influencers to spread their messages. In her book, she describes two recent examples of political campaigns that widely targeted influencers to post messages. Influencers were offered a few hundred dollars if they participated. And it's especially the targeting of low or mid-level influencers that worries Hund. Because it is people like that who are not the huge stars, who are not necessarily pulling in millions of dollars a year or even hundreds of thousands of dollars a year uh, doing their job, but they are just trying to eke out a living. That is really concerning to me because they are incentivized to say yes because of the nature of the work and you know the precariousness of the work. And it brings up a lot of questions that we as a society really need to reckon with about the soundness of the, of the decision to allow this paid for ideologically focused messaging to go on. And so that is a big concern of mine that developed as I was finishing this project. Hund says the influencer industry needs more transparency and regulation. In her view, there's not nearly enough disclosure when it comes to the massive amounts of money that flows through the social media platforms. You know, Stephanie, that makes me think of some of our recent coverage on MarketWatch. We did the story about these YouTube finance gurus. Uh, these folks did highly lucrative sponsorship deals to promote FTX, you know, the failed crypto exchange, and they had millions of followers. One of them told MarketWatch that he was paid $2,500 every time he mentioned FTX in one of his videos. And as we all know, a lot of people lost a lot of money on FTX. Right, and examples like that make me pretty cynical about the future of this industry. Now, Charles, the interesting thing is Emily Hun says she's actually not cynical. It's really because of my research participants. Almost everyone that I have talked to over the last eight to 10 years has been a person that has expressed to me their genuine care and concern for their work and for other people and their desire to do a good job. Despite all of the scandals, and yes, I do think that on a macro sense, this sort of industrial machine, it has absolutely had, you know, there have been negative impacts because of it. 
but I also think it is not going anywhere. It's just going to continue to change. And I think it has made obviously an enormous impact on how our cultural and information environment operates. And so I think it behooves us all to understand it and to figure out how to make it work for us, broadly speaking, as a cultural industry in our society. Thanks for listening to The Best New Ideas in Money. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Emily Hunt. To learn more about the business of influencing, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Charles Passy. We reached out to Meta, Addison Ray, and Kiara Ferragni for comment, but didn't receive a response. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch. The producers are Michael McDowell, Katie Ferguson, and Meta Lutzhoft, who also mixed this episode. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer. Nathan Vardy was our newsroom editor on this episode. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.